Oh, no, so. Walking over here, it just occurred to me we should have another kind of aphorism in English anyway. As quiet, you'll enjoy this, Gishti. As quiet as a rock quarry on Sunday. <laughs> it's really quiet. You look at, this, at, the, at, the, at the trucks and they're like pieces of sculpture. Like, they just sit there, that's what they do. Yes. <laughs> Empty of sound. Quite refreshing, yeah? Well, we're following what I think is very, to use a hackneyed verb, organic, but a very smooth flow, a transformation, evolution through the four measurables. We've now touched slightly on each of the four greats. Uh, there's a little bit more to come. And in this sequence, the very, the very natural one, it's just kind of like inevitable, the next step, uh, is in Tibetan called Laksam. It's beyond the four greats. And as I've interpreted, it's my own interpretation, but I don't think it's you know, going to be misleading anybody. But my way of interpreting, uh, out of whimsy or whatever, the fourth of the greats, this great equanimity, great equanimity, is looking in that perfect balance of a bodhisattva on the final ground, just poised, like right on the edge of the cliff, and whether you fall, you fall. Whether you stay, you stay. Just falling into bliss, into dhammadhatu, into, into the ultimate. Or you remain right there on the edge of samsara. And either way, fearless and without preference. It's quite, quite extraordinary. And wishing that all beings might abide in such equanimity, such equal purity. But then there's a step beyond that, and that is, and it's not quite a bodhicitta. It looks like we'll get the bodhicitta tomorrow. But it's called in Tibetan laksam, laksam. Uh, and I, it, was just, it struck me that among the four measurables, I know I've known the Sanskrit Pali for a really long time. Everybody knows bodhicitta, and I've known laksam for a very long time, the Tibetan. And so I check out the Sanskrit, which is kind of like may as well fill it in. And it's adhyashaya, adhyashaya, adhyashaya. It's it, Hlaksam, or Ajahashe in Sanskrit, uh, it's an extraordinary resolve, that's my general translation, an extraordinary resolve. Hlak means something superior, exceptional, outstanding, fantastic, over the top. And Samba is an intention, a resolve. Pretty much that's it. It's an extraordinary, it's a kind of, like a fantastic, a fantastic resolve. Something like that. Ajahashe, yeah. And what that is, now that we've already had these four greats, we've seen a lot of momentum building up. We've seen I shall, I shall, I shall. So we see the depths of it, that it's gone way beyond psychology. This is, you know, it's gone cosmic. And this, then if there's something even beyond these four greats, then that's going to have to also be on this cosmic level. And it is. And it is a resolve, it's a pledge, an intention, a promise, to... Free all sentient beings from all suffering and its causes and to bring each one to their complete and perfect fulfillment. So it's not quite bodhicitta, but it's a little bit, it's just another step beyond each of the four grades. And again, it's a resolve to free each sentient being, every sentient being, from suffering, all suffering and its causes, and irreversibly, and to bring each one to their perfect fulfillment, their perfect way. So that is an extraordinary result. 
But again, from the perspective of Buddha nature, it's kind of like, yeah, that would make sense. You know, not from any other perspective. It sounds silly. And not from any perspective, that, you know, any notion that kind of consciousness terminates at death. I forget this is completely ridiculous, utterly hilarious. But if that's not the case, then time is on our side. You know, that, well, in due time, as again Shantideva has on the Nisei, for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, sentient beings remain, so long shall I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. So that's it. But as we go into the meditation, it would be very easy now to go kind of like a space cadet, you know, like full, you know, very lofty, very abstract, very spacious, but also kind of lifting out of and becoming disconnected with where we actually live and people we actually know and what's actually happening on the planet. Uh, but then we come back, because I'd like to always keep engaged with our lives as they are. As Padmasambhava summed this up, he said, well, my conduct is pre- as is precise, my conduct, my way of engaging with reality, my behavior, is as precise as individual grains of barley flour. My view is as fast as space. So this actually, I'm, gonna, I'm rambling a little bit here, but this is a really crucial point. We find it crop, crops up centrally of enormous importance in Dzogchen. So I'm going to leap ahead a little bit into Dzogchen. Uh, it cannot be overemphasized. Yeah? And that is Tawa and Chopa, the view and your way of life. And the theme that I've seen again and again, and it just strikes me as monumentally important. See, I've built it up enough, right? View and conduct, view and way of life. And the theme here is don't let your view overwhelm your way of life, and don't let your way of life, your concerns of your way of life, don't let those overwhelm your view. Now the view is viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa. That's a Dzogchen view. That's the, the view of the great perfection, is viewing the whole of reality, samsara nirvana, from the perspective of Rikpa. Well, that's transcendent, it's beyond all dualities, beyond all demarcations of good and evil, it's inconceivable, as vast as space. That's exactly what we're aiming for, is to view reality from the deepest dimension of our own awareness. So way beyond mind, way beyond substrate consciousness, from the very ground, pristine awareness, and we're viewing reality from that perspective. Yeah. So there's the view. But then there's the conduct, and the conduct is ever fresh, ever attentive to what's happening here and now in this space, in this time. What needs to be done? What needs to be done? It's precise, and seeing that our conduct is completely in accordance with our highest ideals, basic principles of ethics, of nonviolence and benevolence, that it's very easy for one to overshadow the other. That is, we get caught up in... In America, a lot of people are very concerned about the, you know, the presidential elections, what's happening there. So that can really get, get us locked into you know, this kind of business, where we're reifying things and we're, you know, we're struggling. We're very much caught in dualities, lots of dualities there. Or just the concerns of everyday life, let alone the national scene, but just the concerns of loved ones and this and that and that. And it's very easy for the concerns of everyday life to completely overwhelm the view that we're caught, we're enmeshed in the entanglements, the details, working out the problems of samsara. It's very easy for the way of life to overwhelm the view. It just becomes something like a luxury, you know, that we get to on retreats or when we have a bit of quiet. Oh yeah, now it's time for Dzogchen. But now I have to get real again. You know, it's very easy to do that. That's where the way of life overwhelms the view. And if the view overwhelms the way of life, we get so caught up in that that we're not engaged with the person in front of us 
and the situation in front of us, and what's actually happening in the world that we know, and are we bringing to this reality the best, very best possible that we can. So it's that balance. It's a marvelous balance. It's, hmm, it's one of those sacred tensions. There is a tension there, but it's a sacred tension. So, I'd like to go to the meditation quickly. I would like to really start moving ahead in our text and not go too slowly there. Um, but I'd like to make this practical. On the one hand, we have this, okay, the view. I mean, for as long as space remains, okay, that's a big view. For as long as sentient beings remain, that's a big view. So that's a big view. But in the meantime, there's this. In our lives, individually, people listening by podcast, everybody here, in our own lives, there is that mandala of, of people, of individuals that we know personally, we've engaged with, or we know of by way of media, by way of history, and so forth. And our awareness of everyone we know or know of, whatever comes to mind when we think of them, remember them, imagine them, see them, listen to them, engage with them, whatever comes to mind, whenever we engage directly or indirectly with any sentient being, it's always by way of our own appearances. We never leap the fence to get to that person in and of, in their own inherent nature, as they exist in and of themselves. We never leap the faith. We never leap the fence to see them as they actually are. And no individual leaps the fence to see themselves as they actually are, because each of us is seeing us ourselves through our own prison. It's not, of course, absolute objectivity. So this means that we are, we are artists, bad artists, good artists, but we are artists, and we are painting the canvas of everyone we know. We're novelists, we're artists, we're sculptors. And everyone we know or know of, how they arise to our minds, is certainly, it's like one of those movies that's inspired by real events. It's inspired by the people's behavior. This is not solipsism. We're not making people up. We're not making up history out of just sheer fiction. But nevertheless, whatever comes to mind, it's painted. It's crafted with the colors of our own minds. So there's just an empirical truth that it's always relational. I never see the other person in and of him or herself. I see them always relative to my framework, my perspective, the colors, the palette of my own mind of my own experience. But the point that really grabbed me this afternoon in my own meditation was that as long as there's anyone out there for whom there's either craving as an attachment, craving, mental affliction, or there's aversion as in contempt, disgust, resentment, anger, hostility, that whole bandwidth, uh, the heart is not at rest. The heart's not at rest. And I think of the Buddha's analogy when he was speaking of the five obscurations. Whenever there's, as long as there is hedonic fixation, remember that? The first one, the five obscurations. Good to memorize these. Insofar as the mind is still prone to that craving to the allures of the desire realm, and that includes other people and things and stuff, but I'm focusing right now on people. Attachment to, whether it's sexual, whether it's familial, whether it's business, whatever it is, Whenever there's attachment to someone else, a craving, a clinging, a grasping to someone else, uh, that's the first of the five obscurations. And does anybody remember what the, in terms of the five metaphors, when the Buddha said you're you're in bad shape? You remember what the one was for that? Colored, colored water. No. No. 
Uh, that's the water. No, when, when the Buddha said, ending in, you're lost in a desert track. That's not colored water. That's another set. You're quite right. It's colored water. That's quite right. It's sick. You're sick. You remember? You're sick. You're indebted. You're indebted. Indebted, sick. In bondage, enslaved, and lost in a desert track. This one really strikes me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm superimposing those five on five, but I think it's not out of whimsy. But see whether it strikes a bell. And that is, if you're still attached to someone else, you still need somebody else for your happiness. Whether it's a person out there who is your guru that you reified, right? or a lover, a friend, a child, a relative, and so forth, you're in debt. You're, you're in debt. That is, you're not whole. You're not whole. That you've fragmented yourself, and some part of the source of your own well-being you've embedded in somebody else. And they're somebody else, which means they're not you, and which means you can't control, which means you're in debt. Isn't it true? It strikes me as true in my own experience. And then, this one actually starts to bring tears to the eyes. If there's any hostility, contempt, resentment, bad feeling, ill feeling, ill will is just a nice clean word. If there's any ill will to anybody in my universe where I wish them ill, I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm not, no way I can call myself well. If there's anybody in the universe for whom I'm holding ill will, I don't want you to be happy. You don't deserve it. You should suffer. I'm sick. That's just literally true. So, this very lofty, spacious, cosmic notion, I shall free all sentient beings from suffering and bring each one to their fulfillment. It's the final step of healing ourselves. Where this becomes practical, and I will give a bit of guidance as a meditation, is not worrying about sentient beings under the galaxies or other star systems and so forth. At least it's in total vagueness. We don't have a clue. Vast, but vague. But when we bring to mind, whether they come to mind or we invite them to mind, the individuals in this constellation of primarily human beings, in our world, primarily, probably you're not holding a lot of resentment for a dog or a cat, although there might be attachment there, uh, but primarily human beings. If, as one after another comes to mind, if for each one sincerely there arises not only the wish, that was way back in the Four Measurables, that's equanimity, that's the wish, aspiration, may you be well, may you free but actually attending to each one. And here I think we have a lot of gravitas in the notion you're in the center of your mandala. You're the king, you're the, you're the monarch, the queen. You're the monarch. That's what it is in Dzogchen. That your mind is the all-creating sovereign, the all-creating monarch of the universe in which you dwell. That's the phrase. Gender, gender neutral. There's no issue there of gender. But if you're really viewing it from your throne in the center of your mandala, and you're viewing this whole constellation of sentient beings around you, and one comes to mind, another comes to mind, another one's to mind, and no matter what they've done to you, whether it's incredibly awful and brutal and mean, or greedy and manipulative and exploitative, or devious and dishonest and so forth, whatever they've done to you or to anyone else, out of malice, greed, or delusion, it pretty much boils down to that.
if you can attend to each one and not only wish them well, may you be free of suffering, find happiness, but as you attend to the one as the monarch in the center of your mandala, and you look them right in the eyes, in, the, in, the, in the, your mind's eye, you say, I shall free you. I take that on. That's my bond. That's my pledge. I shall free you. Yeah? That's healing. That's really healing. Because now it has traction. It's actually engaging with the people in your life, in your history, in your world. And having that unconditional benevolence, that unconditional sense of responsibility, I shall free you and you and you. Each one completely free you from everything you don't want and what you don't want is suffering and the cause of suffering. And what you, I know what you want. I know what you really want. Because what you really want is what I really want. I want the highest possible level of happiness. And I don't want it to fade away and be stuck right where I was before. I don't want that. I want the highest possible, conceivable, even inconceivable, state of well-being. And I, I do not want to fall back. And I know that other person, whoever they are, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, acts of terrorism or acts of incredible benevolence, that's what they want. And so that's what I want for you, and I will get it for you. But of course, in making that promise, then we just have to have the bottom drop out of our ordinary sense of identity, because it's utterly ridiculous there. The bottom drop out of our individual continuum of the substrate consciousness and go right down to the ground. So this strikes me as, I mean, cosmic benevolence, but also ultimate healing. And you won't be at rest, having made this pledge, like just making a prom- like making a promise. You won't be at- if you've made a promise to someone, and you have the ability to carry it out. You're not at rest until you've made until you've fulfilled your promise. Yeah. I made a promise; it was sincere. I have the ability, then I'm not at rest until that promise is fulfilled. And so you make this promise, and this means that you are guaranteeing to yourself that you'll not be at rest until all sentient beings are free. And then you are stepping into the footsteps of the Dalai Lama, Shantideva, and all the Buddhas of the three times, who are not at rest, who are not still, who are not utterly profoundly, primordially, simply at rest. For as long as there's one sentient being who is still suffering, they still manifest. But not as sentient beings. They're at rest and they're in motion simultaneously. So let's practice, see where this goes. Ajashaya, Ajashaya.
But before venturing out on this expedition of cultivating this extraordinary resolve, set your body and speech and mind at rest, loose and relaxed, balanced. Now I invite you to return to the first of the four questions in our original fourfold vision quest. The question being, what is your vision of your highest well-being? And consider now that this really can't be anything less than complete freedom from suffering and its inner causes and complete fulfillment complete and perfect awakening. Hold this vision in mind and aspire for it. There's nothing wrong with it. This is not self-centeredness. This is valid. Aspire for such perfection yourself, however long it may take. As when you took the Bodhisattva vow, go beyond aspiration, go to the pledge, to the promise, the commitment, 
the resolve. To indeed never forsake this ideal, but commit yourself to your own perfect awakening, the promise to yourself. Then from the center of your mandala, the center of your world, each sentient being, of course, being the center of his or her own world, cast your awareness outwards. Let your awareness illuminate the world of sentient beings around you. into the vastness of space. And with the awareness that this is the fundamental aspiration, what Tsongkhapa calls the eternal longing of every such being, which does not let us rest, not even in our own nirvana, does not let us rest until it is fulfilled. Attend to the world of sentient beings, each one bearing this eternal longing. Fundamentally like ourselves. Given the profound, one could say, the existential entanglement of our own lives with all of those around us, without exception, all of us arising in this mutual interdependence. Arouse the determination, the resolve. to free each member of this family from all suffering and its causes and to bring each one to their own fulfillment. Simply let your awareness rest. Rest in its own center, resting in its own place. And from this vantage point of stillness, see who comes to mind, individuals or communities, 
Loved ones or enemies or strangers, people you know directly or only by way of the media, or books, history, and so on. See who comes to mind. And as each one comes to mind, note whether the valence of our awareness of them is colored by attachment, by aversion, or by indifference. Then as you arouse, you reinvigorate this extraordinary resolve, attending to each one, not looking at mental images, attending to sentient beings. Arouse this resolve. I shall free you. I take it upon myself. This is my promise. I shall free you, and I shall bring you to your own fulfillment. However they appear as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, homogeneously, evenly, cut through all these barriers. and arouse this resolve evenly. Do so with every out-breath, once again as we've done before, activating, stirring, bringing forth the light from your own Buddha nature. And as you breathe out, let your light convey this loving and compassionate resolve this altruistic result. As if the light is carrying a message, and imagine the message being received at some level. Message received.
make good on the Bodhisattva's promise that even if other people have a negative connection with you, they've treated you badly. And they may wish to do so again. Let that connection be transformed into benefit for them. The connection has been made. And let your response be the promise to free them from all that afflicts them. Now, of course, any promise when made sincerely must be backed up with a plan, a strategy, by which to carry through with the promise. Otherwise, it's empty, it's vacuous, it's an empty ritual. So without placing any time constraints on this pledge, which would be very unreasonable, unrealistic, taking in the big picture, the vastness of space, the openness of time, Think now, as one individual after another comes to mind, what's your strategy? What can you do, given enough time, to effectively lead this person on the path? A path of their own freedom, a path of their own fulfillment. What can you do? What strategy? What's your plan? How can you carry through? as a point of sheer practicality or common sense. If we promise to guide others on the path to their own freedom and their own awakening, this isn't very realistic. If we haven't traversed that path ourselves, for ourselves, it's difficult to guide someone where we've never been. So bring to mind now your own path. What is your vision of how you may free yourself of your own limitations and endow yourself with all the necessary abilities that you will find the effective means for each sentient being to skillfully lead them out of suffering and the causes of their own suffering and skillfully lead them on the path of their ever-increasing fulfillment, their joy. Their awakening. What is your path? That will enable you to lead others on their paths.
carry through with all of this, you will need great blessings, great momentum. With each in-breath, imagine inviting and drawing in the blessings of all the awakened ones, converging in upon yourself. And with every out-breath, breathe out your resolve to each sentient being, every sentient being.
Then release all appearances, all imaginings, and all aspirations. Release all doing. And simply rest in being aware. Of being aware. When we've experienced conflict with someone, individual or more, and the conflict is not resolved, I think it's quite common for people to think that um, there's no closure. There's no closure. We feel ill at, we don't feel at rest. We feel ill at ease until some resolution has been made, that we see eye to eye, that everything's okay, and that it has to be reciprocal. Good luck with that. (laughs) The person may be dead. How how, how is it going to be reciprocal? They're off in another life. They don't even know who you are. You won't won't recognize them when you see them. Not not likely. And so I think it's an unrealistic expectation that can give rise to simply uh, a sense of dissatisfaction. Useless. That such peace, such reconciliation, such peace of mind, such release can come, but it doesn't have to be reciprocal. It's enough from our own side to release all resentment, all holding on, all grudge, all contempt, all all mental afflictions. That's enough. There's only benevolence, only kindness for the other person. They don't have to reciprocate. They may, that'd be wonderful. But we have no control over that. So there's no reason to give up our power to something beyond our power. That I can't be at peace until 
we see eye to eye. I can't be at peace until you and I have, we, we're seeing everything's okay, that we're okay, we're okay. That may not happen. This is enough. And if the other person is still holding resentment, well, they're in the center of their mandala. It's their affliction. And if we can help them, of course, we may resolve to help them, but we can't set any timeline on it. So now, let's make tracks. Let's go back to the text. And where I am in the text is also Damba. This is Padamba Sangye. Also Damba Sangye says. So we'll try to find that. I'm dealing with the, uh, my digitized version, which I've been editing all over the place. And I've gone quite a bit ahead, uh, because I like really to be able to cover this text, but also return to uh, this wonderful text, Naked Awareness. So, fasten your seatbelt. We're going to make some tracks now. So also, so you can see the context. Uh, I'm not going to go back and contextualize it. It's right in front of you. So as Damba Sangye says, when you are carried by the Guru, you arrive at your desired destination, O people of Dingri, with admiration and reverence. So it's Möku in Tibetan. With admiration and reverence, make offerings at the Guru's feet. So this is obviously highlighting the profound blessing, the empowering of your practice through the Guru Yoga when it's done skillfully, wisely, intelligently. When it goes badly, it can go really, really badly. The exalted Mila, as in Milarepa, says, when, you, when you've departed, he's addressing his teacher, his Lama, when you've departed for you, you as central Tibet, so why don't I just say central Tibet? When you've departed for central Tibet, O oh teacher, a vision of the Guru sometimes arises. When a vision of the Guru arises, I appeal, I appeal to you, I supplicate you, inseparably at my crown, and without forgetting, I contemplate you at my heart chakra. So these are two of the very common visualizations in the Guru Yoga practice. One is visualizing the Guru, indivisible from your yidam, or personal deity, on the crown of your head. The other one is at your heart. Another one I've heard, which I kind of like also, is on your right shoulder. <laughs> so you're always circumambulating. It's like going around a stupa, and the stupa's always on your right. Wherever you're walking, the stupa, your guru's on the right, so you're always circumambulating your, stupa, your guru, even when you're walking in a straight line. <laughs> but anyway, that, of course, this, all of these are lovely images, but the point of this is to be living constantly in the presence of the enlightened awareness of your guru. Great blessing. So now we move on to the main practice. In the main practice of Mahamudra, there are many modes of explanation, but they are divisible into two, sutra and mantra. Mantra is a contraction of mantrayana, which is synonymous with vajrayana. So that's from the root text. And so now we see there are two approaches, two whole venues of Mahamudra in the sutrayana context, the vajrayana context. So... Benjamin Rinpoche continues here, there are many ways of explaining the main practice of Mahamudra. The conqueror, the victorious one, Dikumba, great Kagyupa master, explicating the perspective. This is Gongba. And I checked with one marvelous Lama, very knowledgeable. The Tibetan term is Gongba. And I'm, I was for years together with a lot of other translators feeling kind of uneasy. Well, does it mean intention? Does it mean thought? Those are the two. And I asked... Um, Ganjan Dugaramache from Bhutan, he's really the premier Nima Lama from Bhutan. 
I said, what does gomba mean? What does gomba mean? Does it mean, and I'm speaking in Tibetan, does it more intention or does it mean more thought? Because samba, or gomba is honorific of samba, could be the way. And he said, neither one. It means tawa, it means view. It means view. It means the enlightened view or viewpoint or perspective. That's what gomba means. And that suddenly, Paul. Then I look at all the cases where I've seen gomba, gomba, gomba come, and it worked every single time. It means view, viewpoint, or perspective. So that's how I've translated it here. The, the conqueror, Dikumba, explicating the perspective of Dogunarmachi, arranged Mahamudra according to the three vehicles and the four seals. So he's going he's gonna to unpack this. I'm going to do this right now, but we're not going to tarry here. We can really go so slowly that we'll not want to even finish this text in the next six weeks, let alone get back to naked awareness. So I'm going to be moving rather briskly through. So here's what he says. Here's what Dikumba says. In his discussion of the four profound seals, now bear in mind, mudra literally means seal, just like a seal on a, on a letter, something sealed. So, in his discussion of the four profound seals, the eminent, the eminent Dogun clearly taught that the four seals of the path are methods of achieving the three aspects of awakening, or modalities of awakening. The four seals of the path are characterized in terms of the three vows. This will, this will become clear as we, as we read on. So here is the first of the, here's the first of the three. The shravaka, the person intent on seeking his or her own individual liberation. The shravaka's physical, verbal, and mental inseparability from morality is the action seal. So we're going to find four, four types of seals. Action seal, dharma seal, pledge seal, and then the great seal. Or karma mudra, karma mudra, action seal, dharma seal, dharma, dharma mudra, samaya mudra, and then maha mudra. Okay, so those are the four seals. But they're going to have a different meaning in each of these different contexts. It's very, very brilliant, really. So the shravaka is so, in terms of the, the shravaka's homogeneously ethical behavior, nonviolent, benevolent behavior by way of body, speech, and mind. The inseparability of the Shravaka's conduct by way of body, speech, and mind from the principles of ethics of nonviolence and benevolence, that's the karma mudra, the action seal. The Shravaka's realization the Shravaka's realization of the lack of self of persons or personal identitylessness lack of an inherent nature of an individual, the self, the ego, their realization of the lack of self of persons. Not that people don't exist, but they don't have an inherent identity in and of themselves. This is taught as the Dharma seal. Okay? So there's their realization. Their freedom from afflictions, uh, it really is klesha. It doesn't mean defilement. Zakche means defilement, but this is klesha. Uh, so mental afflictions, afflictions, mental afflictions. Their freedom from mental afflictions is the pledge or samaya seal, and nirvana, the, the nirvana without remaining aggregates is the great seal, Mahamudra. Now the nirvana without remaining aggregates is classic teachings in the Pali Canon, the Theravada interpretation, and that is when the Shravaka Arhat achieves, becomes an Arhat, becomes, so achieves nirvana, and then passes away. The continuum of all of the five aggregates including the aggregate of consciousness, and within consciousness, including the aggregate of mental consciousness. All of these caught, conditioned by prior uh, 
mental afflictions and karma, severed, terminated. So that's without, without remaining aggregates. You leave all your baggage behind, and nothing carries through. None of the five aggregates carry through. That's very clear, unequivocally stated by the Buddha. This is the great seal. This is the Shravakayana great seal. This is their Mahamudra. Is final, total, irreversible, irreversible freedom without ever coming back and not bringing anything of samsara with you. So there's one. There's Shravaka. And now we go to the Bodhisattva. The inseparability of the Bodhisattva's three doors, body, speech, and mind, from the six perfections. In other words, all of their activity by way of body, speech, and mind is never divorced or separated from the six perfections of generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm, meditation, and wisdom. That inseparability, that's their action, this is their action seal, the karma mudra. Their freedom from illusion is, again, the word yuma, it means illusion, so there's no, other reason, no reason to tra- translate it as anything else. Their freedom from illusion and conceptual elaborations is the dharma seal. They've seen through the illusions. They've seen reality as it is, and they've seen it in a way that is devoid of conceptual elaborations. This is the projection that I talked about at some length this morning. They're seeing reality as it is. They're seeing the illusion as an illusion, which means they're no longer deceived by it. They're not being tainted tainted by this stain of self-interest. Now, this, of course, means self-interest in the afflictive sense, self-interest in the sense of me first, self-centeredness. My well-being first. And it's just ubiquitous throughout samsara. It's sometimes subtle and sometimes incredibly gross. But it's that quiet insistence. If it's been two, between you and me, and you're not one, I'm, you're not one of mine, me first. I just should go without saying, me first. That's the stain of self-interest or self-centeredness. But the term here, I'm translating literally, self-interest. They're not being tainted by the by the stain of self-interest because of the bodhicitta, is the pledge seal, the samaya sattva, and the equal taste of emptiness and compassion is the great seal, Mahamudra. The equal taste of emptiness and compassion is a very, very rich phrase. When one first ventures into the teachings, trying to understand, trying to cultivate or meditate on emptiness, it's very, very easy as one steps across that threshold to find that compassion is evaporating. For a very simple reason, the teachings on emptiness say, there is no one out there existing from their own side. That's what it says. There is no one out there existing by their, from their own side, by their own nature. Or as the Dalai Lama often says, it's classic teaching also. It's in Tibetan, it's zuku zuksa. And zuku zuksa is what you're pointing your finger at. Like that. Something really practical. That sense that there's someone over there where I'm pointing my, jabbing my finger. That there's somebody over there that is what I'm pointing at. And they're really there from their own side. That's exactly what's being refuted. And of course, equally... It's not like, not like I'm the only one in the universe. There's no one there either. There's no one from my side, exists from my own side, by my own nature, totally empty of. But if that's the case, then when one starts to go down that rabbit hole, then compassion seems to evaporate. Well, then there's no problem. <laughs> nobody's there. Nobody's here. Nobody's anywhere. Uh, so that e- equally kind of overwhelms. You remember the theme? 
view and conduct, the emptiness can easily overwhelm compassion. But then we come back and we read the news, and 95 people died just in India because they had a whole bunch of fireworks. They didn't go off one by one. They all went off at the same time. Killed 95 people. And they were there for a celebration, of course. 95 people. You read that, it breaks your heart. Or you see, you know, almost all the news is bad. And so you see that what's actually happening, or it's in your own life, a loved one, a, a friend, and so forth. And you see the very, you see the very real uh, struggles they're going through, the miseries, the conflicts they're going through. And as soon as we start taking that seriously, yes, of course we should, it's called empathy, it's called compassion, then emptiness fades right out. Because they're really there, I have to do something, they're really there, they need me, they need me. And it's, I'm, he- I'm really here and they're really there and I'm going to leap to the rescue and I have to need to do something. Emptiness is now just completely history, it's nowhere in sight. Seeing the two, that in fact the deeper your realization of emptiness, the stronger the compassion, the stronger your compassion, realizing the nature of dependent origination, the stronger your insight into emptiness. When you're there, oh, then as Sonkaba said in his Three Principles of the Path, okay, now you found the middle way. Now you found it. He phrases it a tiny bit differently, but the same theme. As you really comprehend the reality of causality, dependent origination, if that insight itself empowers, strengthens, sharpens your insight into emptiness, and as you probe into the very nature of emptiness of inherent nature, if this empowers your appreciation, your awareness, your understanding of dependent origination, then you found the middle way. But otherwise, when we attend to causality, it seems to be real. When we attend to emptiness, causality seems to fade away. So the equal taste, that these are completely non-dual. Of course, this refers to ultimate and relative bodhicitta. So there's the bodhisattva, there's the second. And now we go to the third. According to the path of secret mantra, secret mantra, of course, this is a contraction of secret mantrayana, which of course refers to vajrayana. According to the path of secret mantra, devotion to the messenger. Interesting phrase. Devotion to the messenger is the action seal. Now the messenger can be clearly understood. It's ponya in Tibetan, literally means messenger. Uh, and the action seal is a karma mudra. This can refer to the consort. In, the, in very mature, fully qualified stage of completion practice within highest yoga tantra, that can refer to an actual consort. So there's one. And you notice the word is devotion, not utilization. You're not using somebody. If you are, you're totally missing the point entirely. The inseparable joining of the vital winds, the pranas and mind, is the dharma seal. The invocation of prana mind, lungzen, prana mind, energy mind. Union of these, the going through the central channel and so forth, that's a Dharma seal. The non degeneration of vows, all of your oh your primary and secondary bodhisattva precepts, or this is the bodhisattva, then you have of course your samayas and your vows, your Vajrayana samayas and vows. The non degeneration of vows and samayas is the samaya seal, that makes really good sense. And the manifestation of conate gnosis. Conate, again, it's klenge, which literally means born with, and that's what conate means, born with, born together. The manifestation of conate gnosis is the great seal of Mahamudra. Conate primordial consciousness. I'm sticking with gnosis because it's a good translation. My preference is uh, primordial consciousness. But the conate means you're already, it's already there. Just like Rigpa's already there. You don't acquire it. And it's already there, and it's already knowing, otherwise it wouldn't be Rigpa, which means knowing. 
And likewise, primordial consciousness is primordial. It doesn't have a beginning, so it's already there. But is it manifest or not? Well, that's the question. And the manifestation, the full experience, the identification of this conate primordial consciousness is the great seal. That defines it right there. That's the definition of Mahamudra. Within this Kagyu tradition, so again, you see he's very clearly, explicitly, and repeatedly drawing on the Kagyu tradition, which does suggest he's in fact uniting the Gelug with the Kagyu. On the path of freedom, the pith instruction, this is the Mengak, a pith instruction I think is the best translation, the pith instruction, the Mengak Upadesha in Sanskrit, the pith instruction on inner fire, that's the translation here for Dumo, you all know Dumo, I think, the pith instruction on inner fire, focus on, this is physical exercises, the Tungkor doesn't mean a magical circle, it's uh, the Tungkor, because I've been trained in them, uh, the Adisara, they're called in Sanskrit. These, if anybody's been trained in the six yogas in Naropa, and in the and their physical exercises involving breathing exercises, physical exercises for for arousing dumo, the tunko are the physical exercises, including pranayama and actual physical exercises. If you want to see them, uh, you want to see what they look like from the outside. Uh, watch the movie Yogis of Tibet. Unbelievable. The yogi ju- jumping up about four feet into the air, going into full lotus, and then landing in full lotus. That's just for starters. What you don't see is what he's doing with his mind and his breath. This makes the outer, outer display look like uh, whatever. The inner is quite incredible. And all of that is designed to get those pranas going into the central, arouse the, the, um, the, the dumo, and then manifest... I've been using the word innate, innate mind of clear light, innate mind of clear light. Roger Jackson, our translator here, is using primordial. And I looked at it, I went to a Tibetan Tibetan dictionary, looked at the different meanings of the Tibetan yukma, yukma. And I have to say, I'm shifting now. He's won me over. Uh, instead of saying innate mind of clear light, I'm going to be saying from now on primordial mind of clear light, because this is exactly what it meant. Innate is not wrong. It's not a mistake. But it's, it has that quality uh, of it's always been there. Primordial. So from now on, I'm going to call it primordial mind of clear light. Dune, Dune Yuba, has always been there. It means exactly primordial. It's a good translation. So I'm going back to his translation. So, so focus on physical exercises. The manipulation of the vital winds, I call them vital energies, is the action seal. That's where you're with the power of your breathing, your visualization, and so forth, your exercises. You're drawing the vital, uh, vital energies into the central channel, into the heart chakra, into the indestructible bindu at your heart. That's the action seal. And the arising of blissful gnosis is said to be the dharma seal. And dispassion, this is simply non-attachment. Dispassion is a good word. Non-attachment is the pledge seal. And spontaneous actualization, that's hlundup, hlungi dupa. Hlun means spontaneous, and dupa means to actualize. And so I'm homogenously translating hlundup as spontaneous actualization. Some may, something may be already there, but not actualized, not made manifest, but it's, when it spontaneously is actualized, that's hlundup. And so the spontaneous actualization of your realization of rikpa, that's the great seal. And that's Mahamudra. Okay. So he just went through the three yanas, or four. We have the, if we dif- dis- distinguish between the, the Vajrayana and then the path of freedom, the culmination, then there's four, and there are the four seals. Right. Or what did he call it? He called it the three vehicles. So it is Shravaka, Bodhisattva, and Vajrayana. 
and then the four seals you're, you're familiar with now. So that does that. Then we move right on. The great So for those of you who don't have background in Buddhism, he's called Penchenermaji for a reason. Penchen means Bandita Chambu, which means great Mahapandit. He is, he's truly a Mahapandit. He's incredible in his erudition. That's why they called him Penchenermaji. And so he has this vast learning, and he's displaying some of it here. So it may be more than you need right now, but I promised to give the old transmission and commentary, so we'll go through this, but we won't linger. But he's giving you the big picture, the big picture of Mahamudra as it's manifested in the, in the Vajrayana context and the Sutra. The great Guru Lochambojunupel explains the non-conceptual gnosis that ascertains emptiness. That's, this is Mahamudra. So you're finding different definitions. They're all in the same cluster. And then at the very, I've translated, I've changed the next one. I think it was an incorrect translation. At the very beginning of his, uh, at the very beginning of his, the beginning of his chapter on Mahmudra in his Blue Annals, it's a great, very famous Dharma history, he explains, Now I will speak of Mahamudra, which seals all practices and attainments from the Pratimoksha vows. These are the vows of individual liberation, the lay precept, novice precept, precepts of full ordination, from the Pratimoksha vows that are the basis of the Buddhist teachings right up to the Sri Samaja, often known as the king of tantras, so the culmination of Vajrayana. It covers the whole spectrum. Okay? It seals all practices and attainments from the most basic to the most sublime. Therefore, Mahamudra. So he's giving the meaning so there'd be no ambiguity or vagueness or uncertainty. What does Mahamudra mean? This is what it means. And the translation as great seal is a good translation. Thus, although there are various modes of explanation, in short, since Mahamudra is divided into sutra and mantra, it is twofold, two approaches, sutrayana and vajrayana. Of these, I will explain the former rather extensively here, because I will say less about the latter, I will explain it first. So between the two, he's going to, he's going to go into much more detail on the sutrayana approach to Mahamudra. Uh, but he's going, to get, he's going to take care of, fairly rapidly, a brief overview of the Vajrayana approach, the mantra approach, okay? So he's going to do one very briefly and then the other one more elaborately. So the first one is going to be really kind of a flyover, kind of a, simply an overview, and he's going to do it pretty concisely and we will go through it concisely. Because here, again, we're here not as a, as a scholarly seminar, we're not, there's not a degree program and so forth, this is all for practice. So if it gets a little bit, uh, how do you say, a little bit distant from our practice here and now, I'm going to go a bit more, a bit more briefly. Um, yeah, a bit more quickly. So, Mantra Mahamudra. So this is where he's going to give a brief exposition, but it's going to be pretty, pretty intense, of Mahamudra according to Vajrayana, couched within the context of Vajrayana practice. So the latter, and the latter is the Vajrayana approach. The latter, here we go to the root text, the latter is the great bliss, clear light. <coughs> Roger translated as luminosity, which of course is not incorrect, but it's usel, usel, and most people are translating it literally, usel, clear light. So I'm going to do that as well. Because you've heard the term so many times, and luminosity, um, it's, not, it's nothing wrong with it, but I'm sticking with clear light. The latter is the great bliss, hyphen, clear light. Desel, desel. The great bliss, clear light mind, arising from skill in the methods 
of penetrating the vital points in the Vajra body, the vital points of the chakras, the nadis, and so forth. So this is couched within Vajrayana. The Mahamudra of Saraha and Nagarjuna, Pada, Nagarjuna, of Naro, as in Naropa, and Maitri, as in Maitripi, Maitripa, Naropa, Maitripa, Maitripa being two of the great uh, Mahasiddhas of India, and then Saraha, another great uh, Mahasiddha, and so was Nagarjuna for that matter. The Mahamudra of this lineage, Saraha, Nagarjunapada, Naropa, Maitripa, is taught in the seven attainment texts and the essential trilogy and is the quintessence of the unexcelled tantras. Highest Yoga Tantra, Anuttara Yoga Tantra. So he's going to go through some detail here of texts and we're going to just go right through it, like a hot knife through butter. And why is it called the Great Seal, Chakya Chambu in Tibetan? According to the drop of Mahamudra, so this is a text, of course. According to this text, uh, Chak, so Chakya is the Tibetan Mudra, and so Chak within Gya, Chakya, the first syllable Chak, is the gnosis of emptiness, the primordial consciousness of emptiness. So this is a real scholar's delight here. Gya, the second syllable, refers to freedom from samsaric phenomena. Dharma just means phenomena, so we may as well say phenomena rather than keeping it in Sanskrit. Chempo, which means great, uh, is union. So we took mudra in Tibetan, broke it into two pieces, and then maha is chempo, means here, great means union. This expresses the meaning of saying great seal. Okay? So this is a scholarly exposition and etymology of mahamudra. As for the mahamudra of the mantra system, having received, a minor preference, having received the four empowerments, and guarded your vows and pledges properly. Stabilize your familiarity with the generation stage. So you receive the empowerment, you receive the, the, the vows and pledges, and you keep them, and then you venture into the first two of the major venues or genres of, of practice within highest yoga tantra, state of generation, and you stabilize your familiarity with them. Okay, So you get into them, you really get into the groove, you become expert, you become adept in the state of generation practices. So there's stage regeneration, and then you penetrate the vital points of the Vajra body through skill in various internal and external methods to make the winds, that is the pranas, enter, abide, and dissolve into the central channel. He just summed up the stage regeneration completion in, in like, looks like one sentence. That's it. The gnosis of conate great bliss that arises from that empty from, that arises from that. The gnosis of great bliss, of conate great bliss, that arises from that, from that, from enabling the vital energies to ab- abide, enter, abide, and dissolve into the central channel, dissolve into the indestructible bindu at your heart. I know this is very technical. I'm moving through it quickly. The commentary will take about five years, I think. Uh, <laughs> the gnosis of conate bliss that arises from that realizes emptiness by way of its generic idea. That's my translation of dunchi. I think generic, generic idea is a very closely translation. So you're realizing emptiness, but your realization of emptiness is filtered through some an idea, a general idea. So it's not unmediated. It's not absolutely non-conceptual, but it is a realization. But it's a filtered realization. Okay, That's the first phase of your realization of emptiness. And so, so when such no so 
the conate great bliss that arises from that realizes emptiness by way of its generic idea, and that conate great bliss is the semblant clear light. Be yourself. Semblant means similar to, a facsimile of, a near miss, close to, but not quite the real deal. And this is semblant, kind of a, a, an area of translation, but it's a good one. The be yourself, or semblant, that is the, the facsimile of the clear light, a close approximation. When such gnosis realizes emptiness directly, without any mediation, by any idea, any conceptualization, it is the actual clear light. So we have the facsimile clear light and then the actual clear light, the semblant and the actual. That mind that is of the essential nature of the two kinds of clear light, the semblant and the actual, is given such names as the core of the definitive meaning, the indestructible drop or bindu, the uncontrived mind, ordinary consciousness, and I see I, I patched in something here wrong. What's the um, what is the term? What is the modifier before mind in yours? The one we're in right after that. The next one. Primordial mind. Primordial mind is good. And so forth. Okay, that's the innate mind of clear light. Oh, primordial mind is good. And so it's it's called by different names. It's very common. The great adepts, these are the great the Mahasiddhas of the Arya land, you know, that's India. The splendid guardian Mahasuka, this is not, this Mahasuka is the name of one of the great Siddhas. Uh, the splendid guardian Mahasuka or Saroruha Vajra, some of you will know of him. Lakeborn Vajra, the Lakeborn Vajra, Sogye Dorje, very, very central to the whole Dujom lineage. So the great adepts of the Arya land, the splendid guardian Mahasuka, or Saroro Havajra, uh, that's Padmasambhava. The great adept, the great siddha, the Mahasiddhi, Sar- Saraha, Nagarjuna, Lord Shavari, Telo as in Telopa, Naro as in Naropa, Maitri as in Maitripa. These are all great Mahasiddhas in the Dzogchen or Mahamudra lineages. And others, as well as the early Gagyut masters, including Marpa, Mila, Milarepa, Gampopa, Pakmodupa, who was a disciple, principal disciple of Gampopa, and others. So he just gave the, the constellation of the great adepts of India in this lineage. They all explain the ultimate Mahamudra as the clear light of great bliss, arising from having made the winds, the, pr- the pranas, enter, abide, and dissolve in or into the central channel, the Avaduti. Okay? Within Vajrayana context, that's it. When the vital energies have completely dissolved into the central channel, into the heart chakra, and into the indestructible bindu, such that the primordial mind of clear light manifests, that's Mahamudra. They're all in agreement on this. There's no controversy. That is the principal topic of the seven attainment texts and the essential trilogy. So this is the, uh, you know, the primary textual source, and is the innermost essence of the unexcelled yoga tantras, vast as the ocean. I'm Excelled Yoga Tantras, again, the Anudhara Yoga Tantras. Now, again, just quickly, this is a scholar's delight. If you read Tibetan or Sanskrit, then you know here's the ocean to plunge into if you like to get all the background information. The seven attainment texts. The guardian Mahasuka, so one of the great adepts of India, composed the secret attainment. This is a commentary on the main meaning of the Goya Samaja root tantra. Mahasuka expresses the greatness of the, of the Goya Samaja by such statements as 
There is no tantra greater than the Sri Goya Samaja. It is a unique jewel unique in all the worlds. He then explains the Goya Samaja generation stage a little and teaches in particular the direct meaning of the root tantra, the powerful path of the inseparable bliss emptiness when one practices on the lofty completion stage. The secret attainment, this text, became like the grandmother of all the other attainment texts and the essential trilogy. Mahasuka's disciple, uh, Ananga Vajra, composed attaining ascertainment of wisdom and means, means as in skillful means. Uh, and then Ananga Vajra's disciple, Indrabhuti, composed the attainment of Gnosis. Indrabhuti's lady, or his consort, Lakshmi Inkara, composed the attainment of non-duality, Dombi Heroka, again very famous Mahasiddha from India, composed the attainment of, of the conate, attainment of the conate, and Darikapa, composed the attainment of the principle of the great secret, and Yogini Chinta, Yogini, a woman, a woman author here, Yogini Chinta composed the attainment of the principle that follows the illumination of entities. So I don't expect you to, to memorize that. <laughs> the Essential Trilogy, moving right on, the Essential Trilogy, so that was the, those attainment texts, have set the seven of them, and now the Essential Trilogy. This is just showing, okay, here's background. If you like to really research this, you're fluent in Tibetan, there you go. And then get the oral transmissions and so forth, and you can spend 10, 15 years on that. That'll keep you busy. The Essential Trilogy, with respect to the three Doha, these Dohas are the songs of realization, especially attributed to Saraha, with respect to the three Dohas, collections of Sarahas, some masters, such as the omniscient Bhutan, a great Tibetan master, teach that the people Dohas, one of the three, uh, are purely a Sarahas composition. He wrote them. While the other two are sp- spurious. So he says only one of these are authentic, the other two are, you know, uh, written by somebody else. Also, some say that it, can in- that it cannot be accepted that there is no difference between the Dohas way of teaching and the Agardhya Nagarjuna Pada's way of teaching, the five stages of the completion path. So this goes hyper-technical. The five stages of the completion path, if you'd like to drench yourself in marvelous erudition and a superb translation, look at, at um, Gavin Kilty's translation of Tsongkhapa's great commentary on the five stages of Guya Samaja completion. It's a masterpiece. Gavin did an outstanding job of translating, and I stand in awe. He's an excellent translator. That goes into all the detail you could ever imagine. But it's, it's uh, extremely complex and very high. You have to be a really quite extraordinary scholar to even understand it. You have to be a great adept to really get it. But he's talking about this. There are these lineages of Saraha and Nagarjuna and their ways of explicating these five stages, which are you know, way up on the path of enlightenment, just before become a, become a Buddha. Uh, are they completely the same, or are there some discrepancies between the two? There's some debate about that. Enough for the time being. Some say that passages from the Dohas, such as, and here's a quote from the Dohas of Saraha, as Brahmins spin the sacred thread, the yogi puts his consciousness at ease. This very mind that's bound by worldly cares, when loosed, will be free. No doubt. So there's a phrase, a classic phrase, very quintessentially Mahamudra type of phrase. So there are some who say that some say that passages such as the one I just read, and the fresh, uncontrived mind is best. That phrase, the fresh, uncontrived mind. 
The fresh, uncontrived mind is a mind that's not doing anything. It's not engaged in analysis, investigation, conceptualization. It's simply rest at rest in its own nature. Some say, there's, there's a phrase from the Dohas, the fresh, uncontrived mind is best. And from Maitripa's uh, ten stanzas on reality, here's another pithy statement. Non-investigation is the mind of the Supreme Guru. So what these statements are suggesting is that Mahamudra really transcends all the activation of the mind, investigation, analysis, and so forth, that it should be beyond that. Okay? These are very classic statements, very typical statements that you do encounter in the Mahamudra tradition. So there are those who say that these statements are written for the purpose of explaining that if from the beginning you settle without analysis and block mentation, then you will be free. Some people say that. If you want to go from Mahamudra Dzogchen, good. Just don't do any investigation or analysis at all. Just sit in open presence. Choiceless awareness. Open monitoring. Bear attention. Etc. And that'll be enough. In other words, all that hassle of vipassana and the teachings of Majamaka and so forth, and the teachings on the Four Seals and the Satipatthana Sutra and so forth, all that, oh, who needs that? Just settle down in Marmotsville and just hang out, you know. And that will be free. Some, some people say that. This and similar mistakes regarding the seven attainment texts and essential tr- trilogy occur. But if they are true, and he said, even if they are true, I mean, it, I'm going to put that in, even if they're true, even if they're true, then they are not in accordance with the omniscient Jay's statement, and this is Tsongkhapa. Even if they're true, then if they're true, they're, well, they're just not compatible with Tsongkhapa's teaching at all. They're not in accordance with the omniscient Jay's statement, Tsongkhapa's statement, in the illuminating lamp and elsewhere. That the sayings in the Dohas and so forth are to be practiced on the high mantra path. What he's doing is contextualizing this. Is there a point in stage of uh, in Vajrayana, specifically in Vajrayana, on stage of completion, within complete, within stage of completion, on a high level of realization in the stage of completion, among those five stages, is there a point at which the supreme method is resting? with no investigation and no analysis? The answer is yes. If you do it prematurely, you're a marmot. Do it then, and you're well on your way to enlightenment. You're almost finished. So this is Tsongkhapa's views, and I've seen this many places, also, many places else as well. Let us explain the meaning and examples of the treasury of Dohas just a little. Okay, so these are Sada's, uh, his primary, how do you say, gift of these Dohas. He's famous for them. Okay? And it's quintessential pith instruction in Mahamudra. Absolutely authoritative for the lineage. And he writes, Sadaha says, whoever enters emptiness bereft of compassion will not reach the supreme path. So there's that. So there's just no question about that. If you're just sitting there, no mentation, no investigation, no analysis, and there's no cultivation of emptiness. There's no, there's, no, there's no compassion, I should say. No compassion. Then you're just sitting there. You're not going to reach anything. And if you cultivate only compassion, again, this word gomba often is just uniformly translated as meditate, meditate. But it doesn't mean you're meditate on, meditating on compassion. If you're meditating on compassion, the object of your attention is compassion. 
But that's not what you're doing. You're cultivating compassion, and the object of your attention is sentient beings. So the word gomba means meditate. You're meditating on emptiness, and you're cultivating compassion. But it's the same verb. And sometimes it has to do with your referent you're meditating on, impermanence, suffering, non-self, emptiness. But you're cultivating love and kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, patience, enthusiasm, and so on. So this should much be better. If you cultivate only compassion, if that's all you do, you'll remain here in samsara and not obtain liberation. That's a universal truth. Whoever is able to conjoin the two, to integrate the two, will not abide in samsara because you have realization of emptiness. And you'll not abide in nirvana because you're ongoing experience of compassion. Non-abiding nirvana. Or enlightenment, not abiding enlightenment. Thus, it is necessary to join the subject, the subjective awareness, compassion, which is conate great bliss. So, we have, nominally speaking, conventionally speaking, even in the highest states of realization, we still use words to refer to them. The awareness you're bringing to this experience is suffused with compassion, and it is conate great bliss, and what you're aware of is emptiness. The object of your awareness is emptiness. But of course, when you're resting in that, there's complete non-duality of your compassion, which is of the very nature of conate great bliss, and the emptiness of which you are non-conceptually and non-dually aware. But nominally speaking, we can still say, well, here's the object, here's the subject. Okay, this is all very fast, but I always play it back at a slower speed. If you have realization, then all things are that. That is, we just summarize everything. If you really understand it, then that was it. No one knows anything other than that. When it comes to Mahamudra, that was complete. Reading is that. What's the point of reading? To get to this point. Apprehension, meditation are also that. It's all about this. Holding the treatises in one's heart is also that. Memorizing them, bearing them in mind, it's that. There is no view not indicated by that. It all comes down to that, what was just explained, but it depends on the words of the Guru alone. So to get it, to really get it, uh, it's not going to be enough to read books, or get a PhD, or write a great thesis, or write a hundred books. There's something about it, that you need that living current of the words, the guidance, the blessing of the Guru. It turns out to be true. When the, guru's words, when the Guru's words are taken to heart, when the Guru's words are taken to heart, it's quite a literal translation. This is like seeing a treasure in the palm of your hand. The primordial nature goes unnoticed by the fool. The fool is deceived by confusion. So says Saraha. So the primordial nature is just exactly that, that indivisibility of conate, great bliss of conate gnosis and emptiness. And of course that goes unnoticed. It's one of those things where it's obscured. It's obscured by reification, by all the obscurations of the mind. So the fool doesn't see it. It's right there, doesn't see it. And why? Because the fool doesn't see because the fool is deceived by confusion. That's fundamentally here. The confusion of reification, grasping onto one's own inherent nature, 
inherent nature of everything else. And the parallel with a non-lucid dream is extremely close. Okay. This says, I'll read a little bit more. This says that when yogis directly experience and realize the primordial mind, then all phenomena are the emanations of that primordial of the, of that primordial nature. Well, they already are, but then you actually see that. So I would put in square brackets. Then all phenomena are seen in square brackets. I'm going to put that in right now. Are seen as. This says that when yogis directly experience and realize the primordial mind, then all phenomena are seen as emanations of that primordial nature. No person knows anything that is not an expression of that primordial nature. That's classic Dzogchen teachings as well. That direct realization of the primordial mind is also a direct realization of the essence of reading, the whole point, the essence of reading, apprehension, and meditation, and it is also the main purpose of bearing the treatises in mind. You've studied them and all that? Good. Have you bear them in mind? Are they becoming integrated into your mind stream? It's the whole point. There is no other view superior to the view indicated by that essence. This is the Mahamudra, this is the Dzogchen, the great perfection. However, the direct experience of that essence is by the power of meditation that depends on instruction from the mouth of the Holy Guru, who is part of an uninterrupted lineage of holy beings beginning from Vajradhara, Primordial Buddha. When the words of the Guru, who has such instructions and experience, enters one's heart, If one settles upon and meditates in single-pointed equipoise on the essence emptiness, then one will directly see the meaning of emptiness as if it were a treasure in the palm of one's hand. Not directly seeing the primordial nature, fools, ordinary, individu- ordinary individuals, are deceived by the confusion of clinging to true existence. That's reification. They're deceived by the confusion of clinging to true existence. So says the archer, Saraha. And we will pause there. so. So very dense. But it's good. At times, I've received many, many teachings from my various lamas. I remember quite a number of lamas where they will go through material. Zongrabache, Zongrabache, great Galupa Lama, and adept, he's a siddha. Uh, he came to Tarpachuling, our monastery in Switzerland once. I translated, I translated for him. And in about a week, he taught us all of the six yogas in Naropa. And it's, it was just like on a super compact you know, micro dot. He just poured it in. And of course, he was an incredible scholar. Translated for him on a number of occasions. Enormous erudition, but also a profound realization. He made it quite evident. And in one week, I think it was, Geshe Rapton asked him, uh, please teach the students there. There weren't many of us, maybe 20, 30 of us. 
teaches all the yogas of six, six yogas in Europa. There aren't no more profound teachings in the whole Kaikyu tradition. And this was the Galupa lineage of that, taught by Tsongkhapa himself. So he taught it. And I was translating for him. I was a pretty good translator back then. I'm all rusty now, like an old knife that's been lying in salt water. But uh, when it was all finished, I went to Geshe Dabdin. And it, that was incredible. Shall, we, shall, I, shall I devote myself to those practices? He said, no, you're no, way, you're no way ready for that. <laughs> and of course, he was completely right. Then one might say, well, then what did you bring him here for? That was six, seven days of pretty intense work. And I didn't ask him that. I was always polite with him. <laughs> like, what's up with that? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't do that to my mom. Um, but the point was perfectly clear. A teacher, a lama of the caliber of Zonam, which is very rare. It was rare then, it's rare now. Uh, they're really, I mean, just, shall I say it again? They're really rare. That level of erudition, that level of direct realization, uh, he just glistened with it. I mean, it was kind of obvious with him. And if you have an opportunity to receive teachings from such a being, you may as well not ask for a little baby stuff down where you live. Because this person, this is like a, like, a, like a shooting star. He just comes through and he's gone. You know, he passed, across, he passed away. I've heard his incarnation is quite wonderful. Not met him, but I've heard he's quite extraordinary. I'm delighted to hear that. But in any case, Geshe Rabin said, "No, this is for the future. I've asked him here. Give these teaching. The seeds are planted. Let germinate all in good time. In the meantime, get back to work mm-hmm. in the practices that are aware for you right now that really address your issues right now. But this is the long-term investment. This is the seed stored for the future. And so that's what we're doing here. This is not going to be terribly practical, you know, all the seven texts and the blah blah and the blah blah and all that like that." But this is a transmission. I'm passing it on. A little commentary, not a whole lot, but I think sufficient for the time being. This is, you know, deep storage. This will be there. We're going to get back to the practice pretty quickly. But this is your long-term investment. Right? And it's stored there in your substrate consciousness. So sooner or later, those seeds will germinate. Okie dokie. Incredibly beautiful day. Let's enjoy it. Podcast people, wherever you are, enjoy your day. And I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>